You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. All right. First, let me welcome our new patrons for this week. Thank you so much. Goes out to Alex, Helen, and Richie. Thank you guys so, so much for your generosity and for help keep this podcast going. Your support, I got to tell you, is really overwhelming to me. And um, this has been a great success and has really refocused all of our energies here and got me really into uh, spending much more time on the show than I had in the past. So thank you guys so much. Uh, Before we begin here, let me also just say I am aware that some of you have heard an advertisement on this podcast. Uh, That is true. It has does pop up. Um, It's hard to explain this, but the way it works with the kind of podcasting platform I use is that you can opt into these things like opt into advertisements. Um, So it means that every once in a while an ad will pop up on the show. But um that's the most you're ever going to hear. Don't don't fret. There's, there's not going to be a lot of ads in this show. You may get a couple now and again, some episodes here. Some people will download and get it. Some won't. It doesn't really account to amount to a whole lot of money. I mean, literally dollars. You know, I can't even count it in tens or twenties. Um, but it's there, and I figure the more the merrier. And, uh, you know, the more of a living or <laughs> pseudo living I can make doing this, I think the better it is for all of us, right? And it certainly makes my wife happy. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of Patreon, let's start today's sort of Q&A section with a message from our patron, Kevin, who asked, uh, why haven't they done the big dig in the Money Pit area that they talked about doing a couple of seasons ago? We know it's millions of dollars, but drilling is expensive, too. Even the small holes are expensive. If they find treasure, they're going to have to do some form of a big dig to extract it and make sure they get it all. If they keep drilling and drilling and not find anything, they're not going to be fully satisfied It's if there's not without doing a big dig. We know stuff is moving underground because Marty's coin experiment a few years ago, so why not quit drilling and go ahead and do the big dig? Well, Kevin, it's a great question. You hear that question a lot, especially on social media. Uh, there is a couple of quick answers to it. Um, the nice answer is that it's too expensive and too difficult. And they're not ready for it yet. That's the that's the good way to do it, right? That they want to gain more information. They want to know exactly where the big dig is going to be. Um, you know, they're not going to dig out the entire money pit area. I wouldn't think. Maybe they can. Uh, but it is a costly thing uh, and difficult and risky, right? And the cynical answer is because if they do that, Kevin, then the show's over. Right. So, I mean, I would think that Marty and Craig probably don't want to invest the money to do that. So they would need to talk History Channel Prometheus into doing it right to helping. And I think uh, that calculation is difficult because basically that's the end of the show. Right. No matter what, whether they find it or not, that's it. The show's over. Uh, So you got to kind of keep that in mind. Again, that sounds more cynical than I intended to be. But I think that might be, you know, some of the consideration at least, right? I know there's a lot of cynics out there who thinks that's the entire consideration, but I don't think that. I think it's just too risky and too expensive at the moment, especially when, let's face it, until now, until these digs now, there has been no evidence of a treasure brought up 
from that whole from that area in over a century, right? Or close to a century. So just keep that in mind. I mean, that's a lot to spend on something that you don't really have a lot of evidence for, right? It would be the akin to um, you know, investing uh in a huge project to go find those aliens you're convinced are flying by. I mean, there's just, you know, you got to have a little bit more when it comes down to money, right? And investments. Anyway, let's turn to an email. This is from our friend Peter, who says, in watching the show, we're led to go, aha, the Portuguese, just like that expert mentioned, or, oh, no, new restrictions, just like Marty feared. When isn't the show setting this up? They know some gold flakes are going to be found, so they sprinkle in more quotes about gold. They know the Gunstones could have a Portuguese link, so they drop a connection in an earlier show. Last season or two, there were ox shoes cherry-picked so that we, so that we that when they found the road, our minds were already prepped for hauling treasure. Marty's odd Tumbaga sidetrack looked off track when first presented, but wasn't that the producer zeroing in on future finds? or at least the desired explanations. Now I'm watching the selected evidence as hints of what's to come. Well, Peter, that's a good way to watch. Um, And I think we've kind of hinted at that over the years, that that's what's happening. Uh, I think that this is a little bit new compared to past years. Um, Again, there's a couple of possibilities here. The good possibility, the, the nice sounding one, is that it's just creative editing. And it's being employed more this year than ever before, right? They found these things and they've managed to go back and sort of set it up to sort of give a better narrative arc, right? And that's just editing and they've uh, sent the guys in to talk about Tumbaga a week before they find Tumbaga. Right? It just, just kind of helps with the arc. That's the good thing. The bad is these things have been found over the years and then we act out discovering them this season so we can set things up in a narrative arc, meaning that we're really, as viewers, not at all in tune with what is actually happening and when. Both are both answers here, the good and the bad, are to a degree dishonest and certainly annoying. Um, but the but the but the former certainly more so than the latter. I would think um, it's just it's just. I think a lot of this is editing, uh, and it is getting a little difficult. Uh, I mean, it is getting a little. Um, What's the word? Suspicious. It's not. There's a better word than difficult, right? Okay, it's time now to go to a long to a long email from Blake in California. Blake, you gotta you, you gotta help me out. Do this in like separate ways. <laughs> I'm not a good reader. Anyway, Dave, it's great to have you back after a long summer without any action. Since my enthusiasm sparked last year, I've been almost too engaged in my own research. But happy to say, at the very least, that all of my research has been nothing but historical. I think my interest and research strongly pays tribute to what is really being uncovered here, as you have mentioned many times before, the history of Oak Island. First, I want to say that since my last email, I have strongly swayed away from the Knights Templar and the French and really honed in on the Portuguese. I've had a lingering suspicion that it is the Portuguese who were first on the island during their time monopolizing cod fishing in Atlantic Canada. In the 16th century, bacalo, or the prized Iberian dried and salt codfish, was a huge export back to Europe during that time, and is still very much loved today. We've listened to experts talk about the Portuguese, seen the Portuguese insignia, and now experts have postulated that the path uncovered is likely to be Portuguese of origin. 
It's hard to throw away the existence of these Portuguese, especially in the light of the strong presence of the English and French in the Maritimes. But I think it's very possible the Portuguese made landfall first. I think it's very possible there was a salted cod operation on the island. For example, and he gives a couple examples, the kiln could have been used to smoke and cure fish. The troughs uncovered by the water were part of a complex drainage system used to keep water out and properly drain it during floods. Uh, I forget the name, but those uh, which were damaged during raids through the history of the Maritimes. The stone path could have been a means of transporting large loads of goods from one side of the island to another before loaded on ships for export. Plus, you have oxen, sailing paraphernalia, etc., Excuse me for my lack of pinpointing names, but I'm in a rush to get this to you and will clarify later when I have time to redo some research. My point here is that there is a strong evidence of the Portuguese to support their possible existence on the island. Of course, there have been English and French artifacts discovered along with other artifacts from all over the world. Makes you think globalization really isn't new. My second point is what throws me for a spin. Now there has been talk in the past about how there has been gold mining not too far from the island, indicating that gold mining is, or at least was, present in the region at some time. It was last week's episode of the gold flakes found on the metal artifacts from the drilling that really perplexed me. Flakes of gold like that are likely found on a chisel from mining. doesn't have to be gold. If we contrast the gold flakes on what appears to be maybe a broken chisel coupled with the rose gold found a week prior to drill hole near to a drill hole nearby, we've got chemistry in juxtaposition to geology. I'm practically lost when thinking about the Portuguese and the possible mining here. Yes, mining could have been just digging where gold happens to be present, explaining the gold flakes, or we've got to completely separate operations going on at the same time. This really emphasizes my point here on the history of the island. There is no question quite a few significant things happened there in the last 500 years. I just want to add that this is pure speculation on my part. I'd be happy to do some more in-depth research to share my support my and share support my expl, uh, explanation. Keep up the great discourse. All the best, Blake. Blake, another fantastic email, I got to tell you. A little long for an amateur like myself to read. To really read that uh, something, maybe you guys don't understand, but to I'm sure you don't. There's no reason why you would. Uh, in order to really read that, um, something that long, right? It, take, it would take me, to make it sound really good, it would take me so many stops and so many edits and go back and do it again that I would be here for an hour just reading that one email. Believe it or not, it does take quite that time, unless you're a natural at it, like Mr. Clotworthy, but I am not. <laughs> anyway, another great email. Um, very well thought out. Thank you so much. I remain unconvinced about the Portuguese, although I acknowledge the possibility exists. Terry DeVos' theory linking the Stone Road with the old Portuguese construction is, is, is intriguing, but definitely inconclusive to me, too. Uh, when you say, quote, we've got two completely separate operations going on at the same time, I do tend to agree, but I'm just not sure these things occurred at the same time. I'm also not convinced that these things weren't the work of, you know, these things that we're finding here are of undocumented searcher activity or, or even undocumented First Nations activity or even local farmers doing something we don't know about. Um, as I've said, I'm fascinated, but I still remain sort of unconvinced of these things. I'll admit the problem here is the gold. Uh, I just cannot get my mind around this one. I still don't know what to make of it. Um, what we saw last week with Dr. Brousseau 
was that the gold was not natural ore, but instead something manipulated by people. Now, what is that? What could be there? And why would you find something like that exactly where you're expecting to find it without there being something there? It all seems very um, difficult to wrap my head around at this point, but that's what this whole season's all about, right? Let's, let's, let's watch this all out before we start making any conclusions. Again, thank you so much, Blake. Let's go to Jim, who says, hey, Dave, great podcast, long-time listener, first-time emailer. On the first piece of metal, they, the gold they pulled out, it was mentioned that it appeared to have what they thought was concrete on it. They took it to the university for testing, and the two experts noted the gold as well as the makeup of the metal. But there was no mention on air of any concrete. I know from past experience that when they ignore things mentioned, it usually means it's a non-starter, and they never go back to it. But with the age-old story of Gilbert Hedden drilling through concrete and into the vault, I would think a definitive yes or no as to the concrete would be at least worth commenting on. Okay, let me stop here because he's got more. Jim, bingo. Exactly. Considering the history and what they're going for, the history of the vault, the chapel vault and what we might have found, you know, and we hear about this vault on the show so much, right? If you consider all that, I think we can conclude here that it was, in fact, maybe not concrete, or if it was, the concrete was maybe modern, right? Either way, if it were concrete, <laughs> that would be old enough to be part of this shaft or the part of this vault, the chapel vault, you can bet your bottom dollar we would have heard about it. And since we didn't, makes it very suspicious. Jim continues. One other item of interest. Do you know if they ever C-14 dated the various chunks of coconut fiber they found over the years? I asked because I just finished a book by David Brody, Sheba's Revenge, Oak Island and the Templars. Brody has written a series in which he spins theory, facts, and fiction as he navigates his characters through pre-Columbus activity in the Americas. Great series, actually. In his latest book, he mentioned the dating of coconut fiber. And in his notes, at the end of the book, states that the fiber was dated to a time when there was not even coconuts anywhere in or or near or in south of the Americas. He claims that the coconuts came out of West Africa and the Far East. If this is fact and not fiction, then a whole other set of dates and happenings comes to play as to where the coconut fiber came from and when. His tie, he ties this all to the Templars being in Africa, where they built churches and massive underground series of tunnels, as is so often said on the show. Could it be? Looks to be an interesting year as we move forward. Thanks for your efforts. It is appreciated, Jim, in Iowa. Jim, thank you so much. Um, I'm not so sure about the history of global proliferation of coconut trees. Um, I do know that in the 1990s, Dan Blankenship did have that stuff dated by a company I think he said was called like Beta Analytics. There's a, there's some information online. You can actually find the letters written to him about this. And I believe that it was dated to like within the 12th and 14th centuries, what he had uh, right around that area. Now, whether or not someone did a DNA analysis to see where those coconuts are from, that I haven't heard. I'll have to look into that. Uh, from what little I know, and believe me, it is little. I think there are basically like, I think I've heard that there are basically two types of coconuts. Well, t- two sort of origins of coconuts. One from the South Pacific areas, places like the Philippines and maybe Malaysia. And then some from like the, around the Indian Ocean. And then I believe they were introduced to Africa and then to the Caribbean. 
and South America by European sailors, right? So you're so you're right about that. So if we get coconuts that are <laughs> coconut fiber dated to that time, the 13th or 14th century, well, you you definitely this is definitely a time before those coconuts could have originated in South America or in the Caribbean. Okay, so this had to be somebody coming here from a place where they had where they could source them or had something along those lines. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. I don't think that precludes anything other than the fact that <laughs> the coconuts couldn't be from from um, South America. God, I hope I hope I'm I hope I'm making sense. Again, I believe they were introduced um, to the Caribbean and South America by European sailors. Many of whom were the Portuguese at this time. Um, again, though, I, we're talking about something that's in the deepest reaches of my memory, which can be a dark and scary place. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, though, Jim. Something I wish I had a better answer for. Um, thank you for your email. Keep them coming. If you do that research, send it in. Um, let's finish up with Brian, who says, Hey, Dave, I have to be honest with you. I really struggled to like your podcast, mainly because I thought you were being too skeptical and almost too condescending toward the fellowship. Okay, let me pause here, Brian. I'm I'm not trying to do that. I mean, I am a skeptic, right? Um, in so far as I am skeptical that there's a treasure there, I don't know. That's that's basically what I'm saying. I think that's um, I think that's clear, right? The best way to put it is to say it like this, and this is how I've said it to many people who uh, accuse me of having a side or something. You know, I say I say to them, I admit this. I have no idea what happened on Oak Island before 1750 or so, and neither do you. <laughs> no one else does at this point either. There are a lot of theories, but that's all they are. But it is certainly the nature of this show, of this podcast, or at least the nature of the podcasts that come out focusing on the reviews of each episode of The Curse of Oak Island, for me to sound like I'm taking the cast to task. Because I, I I feel that the side of the debate that is the believer side is represented on the show, right? So it's my job here to kind of play a little devil's advocate to kind of get to the bottom of some of the things they're saying. So if that if if that means that I sound like I'm I'm condescending, that's certainly not my attempt. Although I do condescend for sure, um, uh, but I'm not trying to make a point of disagreeing with everything they say because I am not convinced there's a treasure. I'm also not convinced there isn't one. It's important to understand most people in this debate are convinced of one of those two things. I'm not. And that's why I'm doing this show. Anyway, he continues. Uh, the way you have chosen to address the halt on digging and Marty's response has changed my mind completely. As a former history teacher, I am always amazed how quick people are to jump to conclusions and overreact with little information. Thank you for your well thought out and measured responses. I do want to throw another possible interpretation of events your way. I know Marty came off as impatient treasure hunter, but I'm wondering if it wasn't due to the fact that his current of his current financial situation. Marty is a businessman, and I do know that the Michigan economy was hit hard during COVID. I'm wondering if Marty had felt like he had gotten all his ducks in a row financially for the season's massive undertaking, and now the delay has put another strain on him. He doesn't want to kill Rick's dream, but the amount of money he continues to pour into it is crazy. Thank you once again for your measured words. Much respect, Brian. P.S. I'm just north of Philadelphia. Hope to catch you when you DJ sometime. Um, Brian, 
Wednesdays, 2 to 5 p.m., 89.7 WDVR. You can hear me doing uh, all afternoon. The first two hours is all the music of New Orleans, and then from 4 to 5 is all like tropical kind of trap rock stuff. So tune in anytime, please. You should be able to get it there, too. Um, you know what? The best-kept secret here uh, is who's paying for all this, and we talk about this a lot. Is it Marty? Is it the History Channel? Um, you could be right, assuming that Marty is front flipping the bill for all this. I'm not so sure he is because Marty's been asked this question many, many times in interviews. He's been asked questions about how much does this cost? Who's paying for all this? You know, is Prometheus involved? And he never answers. No one ever answers. So I think because of that, I felt, I feel like I think it's pretty safe to conclude that it is not just him or, and Craig or, or, or why would they hide that? So I'm not so sure that's what this is all about. So far, if we're going to take a non-cynical view of Marty Lagina, which is what I hope to do um, and which is what I want to do, I think the best explanation is that he was trying to send sort of a vocal signal out that, um, you know, doing this is difficult. He wanted to, to show the government the consequences because, you know, the government's watching. Anyway. Thank you so much, Brian, for everyone and for everyone who wrote in this week. If you'd like to send me an email for me to answer on a future show, just send it to diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Okay, so it's time to discuss Season 9, Episode 5 of The Curse of Oak Island called Hatching the Plan. You'll probably get that pun later on. Let me start by pointing out that there was... Um, Hardly even a mention of the government involvement like we were just talking about this week, and we didn't hear much about gold either. Uh, as good as this show has been so far this season, for me, this particular episode didn't have the same kind of excitement levels. I mean, I thought it was interesting, but as I think they all are interesting. Um, and But, I, I, you know, maybe it kind of had was this was sort of a little catching of the breath a little bit here after the first four episodes. So let's start over at the money pit, because not really a whole lot happened here. Um this show begins with a war room meeting with Vanessa Lucido and David Irving, Vanessa of Rock uh, Limited or Rock Equipment and Irving, David Irving from Irving Equipment. These are guys who are going to do the drilling and the cans and the big work. These are the heavy duty crane operators and all that kind of stuff. Right. These are the experts really being brought in. And they're discussing plans here for these big cans, these big 10 foot cans they're going to put into the ground. Marty says something interesting here. Um, he says, quote, by the way, we would like to do this in as non-destructive way as possible, end quote. Well, Marty, all snark aside about your uh, feelings on destruct destroying the swamp, um, I just put that put that to the side. And let me just say, too late, man. Uh, you know, the money pit has been absolutely destroyed for centuries. <laughs> I love your idea here, but I just don't think it's possible. So another thing they say quickly in here is they're going to do four 10-foot wide cans. So that's what the end of the season is going to be, these four cans going into the money pit. A lot of people worry about whether or not we're going to see cavens again, which we've seen past with these big things. Got to start to worry about this now because this is some really big work that could destabilize that ground for sure. Um, later on in the episode, we see them digging a new hole. This is um, 
kind of the furthest off C1 than all of the other ones that we've seen so far. They call it E1.5, and it's pretty far southwest of C1 and what they're now calling the Dunfield Zone, right? And we're going to talk a lot about Dunfield here because I agree with the digging here, but it's almost a strange thing to do because this whole area, if they're certain it's Dunfield's area, is almost entirely backfill now. So they're basically just trying to get past his backfill to see what might be there. Um, they find wood. There's not much shock there. Uh, again, the, the thing is, all of that wood, all of those spikes, all of these things that we make a really big deal about in this show, if Dunfield came across them, he just threw them all back in. Or he put them in a spoils pile. <laughs> So let's head over to the spoils pile and talk about that. This is on lot 18. So Dunfield made this huge 100-foot-wide, whatever the number is, um, hole. And it was sort of a cone-shaped hole. So it got shallow. It, it got um, uh, thinner as it got went down, right? It was only 100 feet wide at its widest point, which was at the top. Uh, so he dug all this stuff out. Uh, failed in his efforts to find the money pit and, and, and anything like that. And then he filled it all back in. But when you do that, when you pull, anybody who's dug a hole knows you end up with more dirt on the pile of, in the pile on the ground next to you than needs to fill in because rain and time hasn't compressed this dirt down when you've backfilled it. So what he did, rather than really go through any kind of, uh, um, you know, exert any kind of uh, idea of trying to fix the whole area as he filled it all back in. And when it was full, he just made this pile a little bit further away on lot 18. Again, I think this is a good idea to look here because Dunfield didn't. <laughs> so if there is actually evidence in here of where the money pit might be, Let's say Dunfield was wrong, but there's evidence in where he dug as to where it might be, or also importantly, evidence to other searcher activity. Dunfield didn't even bother with any of that stuff. He didn't look for any of these things. If it wasn't treasure, he wasn't interested, right? So any of that stuff is now just dug up and thrown back in. So they find wood, pieces of wood, a good sized timber. They find spikes. The problem is, we don't really know what any of this is, and we're never going to be able to answer that. And I think the other interesting thing here is that it's weird to worry too much about it now because in the long run, although I am, let me just say I am for it, but I also understand the argument that, <laughs> that hey, if Dunfield was looking in the right place, if E1.5 is the right place and the spoils tell us something. Well, if Dunfield was looking in the right place, then aren't the Laginas not looking in the right place now? Because they're 30 feet to the northwest or whatever it is, northeast or whatever it is, right? So it doesn't make sense, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The only sense I can make to of this is, and why we're talking so much about this, is we're setting something up, right? Are we setting up something to do with Dunfield and these spoils and this area that's going to come later on? We talked about this already, the way they've been doing such a such a um, thorough job at setting up things. Anyway, 
um, why they're here, right? Why they're digging, why they decided, oh, let's let's dig all these real close to C1 and then let's dig this one all the way down there in the Dunfield area. That didn't really get explained. Like they just sort of piled it into the C1 area, but it's not the C1 area. It's And if it is considered the C1 area, boy, it is sort of on the edge of it for sure when they've been digging mostly around following other things. So it wasn't really explained. Again, I think this might be a setup, although I don't know what that could possibly be. Later on, one of these spikes, Carmen Leg actually comes, blacksmithing expert Carmen Leg actually comes to Oak Island. So the world is definitely opening up up there in, in Oak Island for sure. Instead of them having to go up to him, he comes down to them. And he says that this is a mid-1700s cribbing spike. Basically just means it's a spike used to fasten things together. It's a fastener spike. Um, later on in the same place, they add more wood. They find more wood in, the, in this pile as well. And it's all, you know, kind of exactly what we expected. Uh, interesting here, Steve on the Patreon, because if you're a patron... We do, uh, I, I comment live during the airing of the show. We do like a discussion forum live during the airing. Steve asked, uh, so come and join us if you're a patron. Uh, Steve asked, uh, why would they not dump the Dunfield spoils into the wash plant? And then later on, or right at the same time, Dan, another patron asked, what happened to that huge vibrating washing machine they had several years ago? The last few seasons, they have just been using a table and a hose. It's a great question. They did make a point about buying a wash plant a couple of years back, but I haven't seen hide nor hair of that since. It's kind of strange. Anyway, more digging later on finds what appears to be maybe a part of the stone path that comes out of the um, swamp. Steve Guptel kind of talks about it and confirms it could be coming here and Ian Spooner comes in and he sort of agrees it looks right. But I'll say this, what we saw here was very early on in this process. We have a lot more to find out here about whether or not this is actually what we're looking for, an extension of this road, because it just doesn't, what we saw here just wasn't enough information. So, more to come. Okay, I think the most talked about part of this show was what I like to call my crackpot sessions. This is one of these war room sessions with a theorist who comes in and presents some ideas. Um, this, these are usually pretty fascinating, and there's a lot of kind of information to talk about. This one is presented to them by a guy I was unfamiliar with. His name was Matt Sant. He's an engineer and also a theorist. Um, and he's focusing on the map that belonged to Zena Halpern. Uh, I know now if you want to read more about this and Zena Halpern's theories, she's got a book out there. It's a very readable book. It's called the Templar mission to Oak Island and beyond search for ancient secrets, the shocking revelations of a 12th century manuscript, because there is more to her theory than just the map. There are other documents that are involved. Now, the big thing that happens here is this Matt Sant that, this is all a very, very strange scene for Dave, okay? First of all, if you go back and watch it again, the way they edit, they do a weird thing with the lines that they're showing. I've never seen anything besides the squiggly line that goes 
from you know that the big kind of squiggle line but if you look at the first thing you're seeing that squiggle almost taken away i don't know what that manipulation was all about i still don't know what that is or or why that's there um and his big revelation in this was that he thinks the hatch is not the hatch that the first thing we read instead of reading the whole under being one thing and the hatch being another thing was one thing called the hole under the hatch. And the weird thing is, is, and maybe this is just because of my stupidity, I've always read it that way. <laughs> if you look at the untranslated version of the map, it is clear to me that the whole, that the way that's written, the hole under the hatch, is one thing. The English translation plays around with the I don't know how to put it, plays around with the blocking of the letters just enough to make it a little more ambiguous. But I've always read it that way. So I've never understood why the hatch is different. I mean, there's the only other thing you could think of is that there's the hatch, but then there's also a hole that's under the hatch. Uh, And maybe those are two different things in some degree, but they're always meant as one sort of unit in my in my mind. And now he appears that this is going to be on lot four, which is on the on the western side of the island, a little bit further away. So with that in mind, they bring in a company called CSR or something. Uh, there are a couple of guys who are expert in doing these kind of scannings. They do a VLF scanning, a very low frequency scanning, and they do a magnetometer reading of these areas that they think the hatch is in. Um, I think it was called CSR Geo Survey Limited or something like that. Uh, a couple of guys there doing it. Later on, they come to the war room and they report what they found. And there are there's a map. And on that map, and these are only the magnetometer readings. So they, the VLF scanning is not done yet. It's important to understand that. the VLF They don't have all their information. They're only presenting us with half of what they did, right? And they admit that this is all very um, early on in the process. The data hasn't been analyzed and all that kind of stuff. Magnetometer reading shows a bunch of anomalies. If you look at that map again and you hear the colors that they're telling you are anomalies, they're all over the place. And they happen to find one that seems a little close to maybe where this hole under the hatch thing, although I completely disagree with that because I think what that's actually pointing at is this valve thing. And not the hole under the catch, but I'm not even going to get down that road, okay? Um, so there, there, and you know, there's again, there's anomalies everywhere, not just in this general hatch area that they've decided on through the work of Matt Sand. Here's the problem. I, I love theories. God, I love theories. I spent hours talking to Corey and Maul. I love this. This is what I'm in for, right? Uh, I'm in for, you know, when did the Templars come here was my first way in the first, the first theory I ever read that made me go, Oh, wait a minute. Right. was Francis Bacon. Right. And all that kind of stuff. This, this, this is my patch of grass. Zena Halpern's theory though, is not my patch of grass. And the reason why I say that is because 
I don't, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. I don't think Zena Halpern is peddling lies knowingly, but I think her theory is based on something that is not genuine. And I think that maybe, I don't know how to put this politely. And I, and I struggle with this because I, you know, who am I to say, but of all the theories that are based on this sort of crackpot stuff, there are a lot of people out there who've had firsthand knowledge of the documents and the map of Zena Halpern's work that it's based on who claim it to be a fake. Not that Zena Halpern faked it. Get Don't get me wrong. But that she was working based on a document or a map and a map that were not genuine articles, were not Templar related. We're not made by the Templars. And there is an incredible amount of information out there about what it really was. And here's the thing. I love to spend a lot of time researching and talking about theories that are possible. I'm not going to spend (laughs) 20 minutes telling you why Zena Halpern's theory is probably not possible. I need you as listeners to do that on your own because until somebody convinces me otherwise that Zena Halpern's map is, um, is genuine in some way, shape or form, whether it be a copy of a map that was actually existed or whether it be absolutely the case, let me put it to you this way. Do we all know who Scott Walter is? He used to have a uh, show on the History Channel, I think it was, uh, where he was a forensic geologist and he does a lot of work and he pedals in a you know, I shouldn't say pedals, and he, he deals a lot with these theories and that kind of stuff. Uh, Scott Walter was actually working with Zena Halpern for a while. He's seen this map and he's seen the original and he told me that it's not old. It's not printed on old paper. It's not old. That's just one thing. I don't want you to get hung up on that or who said that to me. That's just one thing. My point is there's so much doubt in this theory and what this theory is based on that in order for me to spend the rest of this podcast talking to you about the intricacies of her theory or the intricacies of why the theory might not be correct, I just don't see that as uh, I don't see that as forwarding our cause here of trying to get to the truth of the Oak Island mystery, because I need to be convinced that at least this theory is based on facts. And at this point, I'm sorry to say, I I love Rick's, um, I really do love Rick's sentimentality towards Zena Halpern and his relationship with her seems to be very genuine, but I got a lot more convincing to do than Zena Halpern was able to do in her book and in her time. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Let me just uh, do some shameless plugs. Uh, I do uh, the aforementioned radio show. If you're in the New Jersey, West Jersey, East Pennsylvania area, you'll find me on 89.7 WDVR-FM every Wednesdays from 2 to 5 p.m. So just tune in there. You can also listen online. Go to WDVRFM.org or you can simply tell Alexa, apparently, to turn on WDVR. And that's just Wednesdays from 2 to 5 p.m. Play some great music there. So come and join me. 
Also, I do another podcast, Sit Downs and Sessions. We haven't done one in a while, but we got some cool stuff planned for the holidays, including perhaps uh, another reading of A Christmas Carol, which always (laughs) devolves into nonsense. So give it a listen. Sit Downs and Sessions, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you find your usual places. And don't forget... If you really want to help out the show and you really like the show, if you think we're worth $5 a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We really do appreciate that. And if you have any questions or comments for me, you can do so directly, Island at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Island. If you send me a question or a message, if you don't want it read aloud, just make sure you make a note of that. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.